Hi, this is Dave Summers, and welcome to AMA Edgewise. Ken Kushenda is the former principal engineer of iPhone software for Apple and is the inventor of keyboard autocorrection. I'm sitting in front of the inventor. Over his more than 15 years designing groundbreaking and intuitive software for the company, he worked on the teams that created the Safari web browser, iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch. He holds more than 50 5-0 patents related to Apple innovations before Apple. Ken took a circuitous route to technology after graduating from Yale University. He fixed motorcycles. He worked in the editorial library of a newspaper. He taught English in Japan and made fine art photographs. Eventually, he discovered the Internet. He taught himself computer programming and made his way through a succession of dot-com-era startups before landing at Apple in the year 2001. He's the author of a fascinating new book entitled Creative Selection, Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. It's published by St. Martin's Press. Steve, the nerd in me is, like, really excited about this. Welcome to AMA Edgewise. Well, thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here. Why is it so challenging to create something simple and intuitive? I look at those two ideas as separate. So here's how it goes. Simplicity in design is about taking things away, right? Reducing the number of elements in a design. And if you're a company like Apple trying to sell high-tech devices, the pressure is always on to add features to make something new out of the latest technology. And so these forces are in opposition to each other. And so at Apple, we always try to retain the simplicity as much as possible, even when we added things. This is why it's difficult, right? These opposing forces. Now, making software that's intuitive is a little different because it's a matter of tapping into what you can expect people to already know. So we think maybe today of an iPhone as being, I hope, the most intuitive smartphone. But if you can imagine, right, if you had a time machine (laughs) and, and you brought Leonardo da Vinci into the present day and handed him an iPhone, he wouldn't know what to do with it, right? And so what's intuitive moves and changes, as the technology landscape changes. So, you know, again, as a, as a company like Apple, it's a matter of trying to push the boundaries to change the way the software works, the way a button looks or what an animation communicates, while still keeping touch with what you can expect people to know. So, again, it's a case of opposing forces. Would something like the iPhone exist if there was no Steve Jobs? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. You know, I, We had smartphones before Apple got involved in this space, right? And if there was no Steve Jobs and if there was no iPhone, the phones that we would have today would probably be better. We'd probably be pretty happy with them. But would it be just like it is now? Would there be the app ecosystem that we have today? Well, I think that was part of Steve's unique vision. So I would say no. We wouldn't. We'd have something and maybe even something wonderful, but it would be different. I'm going to kind of do a little bit of a bizarro world spin on that question and say, would something like the iPhone exist if Steve Jobs had not come back to Apple? No, no. Again, uh, no. Steve, 
reset Apple when he returned. And he set the company back on the track that it's still on. Now, so you think, you know, now even when I joined Apple in 2001, which was even still a couple of years after Steve's return, but even then, when I joined in 2001, the company was still four months away from releasing the iPod, the mm-hmm. music player, right? The Mac was the company's main product. Sure. And it was struggling. It was at maybe 5% market share, right? Microsoft Windows was the dominant force Mm -hmm. in computing. And so Steve had this vision to make Apple relevant again. And not only in the market, we've seen that with trillion-dollar market capitalization, that happened, but also to make Apple relevant in people's minds. Mm -hmm. And with products like the iPod and then the iPhone and the iPad, that worked out pretty well, I think. In the book, you mentioned one of my favorite books, I'm dating myself here, of all time, Tracy Kidder's seminal, The Soul of a New Machine, which changed my life. Did that book play an important role in the way that Silicon Valley perceived, organized, and perhaps even judged itself? I think so. It was a very popular book. I could assume that the colleagues I had around me at Apple had read it. Mm-hmm. You know, Certainly at Apple... We had a notion similar to the idea that Kidder talks about in his book of signing up, right. which is this moment where typically a young and harried engineer takes on the responsibility for delivering a feature in the product that they're trying to make. Now, in Kidder's book, this was at Data General was the company, and they were trying to make a new piece of hardware, a new, a new mini computer. Now, at Apple, we had the same idea, although we didn't call it signing up. We had this notion called directly responsible individual. We called it a DRI. Mm -hmm. And every feature for every product at Apple had a DRI associated with it. So like on the first iPhone, I was the DRI for the software keyboard. And I was responsible for making it happen. So if anybody ever had a, a question or a complaint or a problem or an idea, they could come and find me. And I was the one empowered to make that feature happen. So, yeah, I mean, the Kidder's idea really did permeate. We had our own version of it at Apple. I, it was, I, again, it wasn't so much Kidder's idea, but it was the storytelling in that book that drove, in my mind, so much of the passion for how theoretically, and I guess historically, Data General did what they needed to do or yeah, something it, like it's, that. It's true. It's an interesting point that you make, is that it's maybe just something, that, not that Kidder invented, but something that he recognized. Right, it was the way he framed it. Yeah. Yeah, something he recognized about how these products happen. You start with an idea, which is nothing. Yeah. And then you wind up with a product that you can ship to customers, something concrete and tangible. How do you get there? Yeah. How do you get started? And this notion of parceling out the work and getting people to take on the responsibility for delivering it seems to be, certainly in my experience, is an important part of what makes it happen. I think also was the way he discussed and described leadership in that book. I, and I'm drawing a blank on who their enigmatic, you know, wizard-like what leader was. Tom was. West? Yeah, yeah. A, exactly. A good man in a storm, you know right. what I mean? Who was yeah. very compelling and very motivating and stuff like that. But you look at that before the Steve Jobs phenomena and stuff like that. And it's amazing. I think you get that overlap of the person who challenges and brings teams to the next level. It is really hard to do this kind of work. And 
I think that somehow it's this combination of the leader who can inspire, call somebody out for maybe not yeah. doing a, a great piece of work at a particular time, but then, but then not discouraging, right? right? Uh, keeping people on track. It's this odd alchemy, yeah. I think, of both good and bad features or good and uh, bad aspects of a personality, sure. encouraging and, and you know, kicking butt if you need to sometimes as well. And, and Steve certainly had his own unique version of that. Right. Here's a question I wanted to ask an Apple insider for the longest time. How much of the great work that's done at Apple happens in teams, in meeting rooms, versus inside the brains of super smart, talented individuals? You know, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. My, my answer to that is yes. Vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry. But I can add some more color to that, which is that you know, I think the great ideas often spring from the mind of an individual. You know, whether it's somebody sitting alone in their office or sitting with a notebook outside and enjoying the sunshine or, you know, like driving in your car, commuting, whatever. I think that those solitary moments where you're just thinking about the work is when the, those flashes of inspiration come to you. And then, in my experience, the work that initially capitalizes on that is best done alone. But once you have something you can show, an initial demo or a prototype, which is the way that we worked at Apple, then you've got to get up and you've got to show people. That's when the meeting room and the whiteboard with the couches around it really comes to the fore, is that you show people the thing that you've thought of and they give feedback. They respond to it. Mm -hmm. They criticize. But it's that essential, concrete artifact that you can refer to sure. that sprang from the mind of the individual that really sparks the most productive group discussions you know and then it's to me it's a process of repeating mm -hmm. the individual will go back to his or her office close the office door try to think of how, how do i respond to what i just heard from the group and again and again and again and again and of course at apple we had a process for not only doing that on an individual basis group basis but then eventually executives and steve himself would become involved in this process of bringing the individual work out responding to it giving the feedback criticism we figured out action items and then repeat mm -hmm. quentin tarantino the director writer crazy filmmaker has a quote that i like a lot and that's basically the good ideas will survive and the enigma to me about that point is, do they survive simply because they're better ideas or do they survive because they've got a wingman or a wingwoman watching out for them? Well, perhaps. I think that's one of the challenges of the system that I just described, sure. such as it is, right? That there are numerous ways where things can go off track, where maybe politics get involved or the voice of the person, the stature of the person presenting the idea counts for more than the idea itself. That's a danger. But I always found that Apple, that, you know, I was an individual contributor. I had no staff. I think that back in the day, Steve Jobs recognized who I was, but if he quizzed him on my name, eh, maybe he wouldn't have known it. But, you know, I demoed to him enough that I think he recognized me when he saw me. But that didn't really matter. It mattered if the idea was good. Right. That was the key to Apple. And I remember there were times 
I mean, I, I can think of one time in particular where I was in a demo with Steve in person and he presented an idea for a gesture for the iPad. And my demo was something else. It was something different. So Scott Forstall, who was the, another executive at the time, said, Steve, why don't you just look at Ken's idea? He's got a different gesture for this feature than what you just suggested. And as soon as Steve saw my idea, he went, okay. Yeah. And, and so just like that, Steve Jobs was open to my idea and he set his own aside. Mm-hmm. I guess he decided my idea was stronger just in the moment, just like that. And so, you know, we think of him as having a big ego, but not really, not when it came to ideas. In the chapter entitled The Intersection, you describe several crossing points between art and science, between fans and skeptics, between algorithms and heuristics. Why are intersections so damn important? (laughs) Well, I, I think it's a matter of combinations creating synthesis, right? A combination of two things that have never been brought together before and the new thing they create as a result. At Apple, we tried to bring together technology and the liberal arts. This is something that you can go out on the internet and find videos of Steve Jobs talking about this, which is very odd for Apple, right? Telling you a little bit about the internal thought process. And for Apple, the notion of a great product was one, yes, that brought together the latest advances in hardware and software and networking and chips and, and all, of, all of that that goes into the gadget. But then also figuring out how to include the best of design and culture and empathy for people, bringing together these, you know, intersecting these two notions forms the core of the Apple notion of a great product. I'm going to piggyback on the empathy thing. It actually is an issue for us here at the American Management Association sometimes in terms of the way we try to support people and bring about cultures and capabilities as it involves empathy. Now, empathy in the book, as you feature it and several other people I've spoken to, empathy is a critical element in great user experiences. Can a person slash designer slash coder learn to be empathetic? I hope so. Are they just born with it? You know what I, I mean? It was the way they were raised, graham crackers and warm milk before bedtime. Or, or can, you know what, good news, you can learn how to be empathetic. I think everybody can learn to be empathetic. I think this is largely a matter of effort and experience and the willingness to step outside yourself to look at the world from somebody else's perspective you know as a designer at apple there were so few of us on these teams and yet we designed products that wind up getting used by millions hundreds of millions of people out in the world well how do you do it well you try to look at the world from somebody else's perspective and understand that at least in our work we understood that most people, when they pick up a gadget, they don't want to think about the gadget. They want to think about their goals. I'm going to send a text, or I want to look at a photo, or I want to surf the web, right? right? And figuring out how to get the technology out of the way so that people who aren't technologists, that they don't have to be, Right. right? And the way to do that, I mean, since the people that I worked with 
Well, they are designers. They are technologists. They are experts. They're up to their elbows every day in what these products can do and how we're trying to make it work better. But what we could do, what our culture did, was it placed this priority on stepping back, trying to look at the problem from outside, from the standpoint of the user who will be going to the store and, and buying the thing off the shelf, taking it home and trying to figure out sure. how it works. And so somehow we did it. Again, I think this is a matter of maybe the culture at Apple, but but I, I think also each individual trying their best mm-hmm. to look at these problems mm-hmm. from the perspective of other people. That's what it is. Now, you're no longer with Apple. Is no, that, is, no. Is I, I, left, I left Apple in May of 2017, so it's not quite a year and a half. So what's next for you? Uh, well, I just wrote this book. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I was going to do after I left Apple. I just followed my nose and... This book idea came up, and within a few weeks, I had a contract, and, and I've been concentrating on writing it for you know, over a year now, and it's just come out, so I'm really just going to maybe follow my nose again, see Sounds what Sounds good. Yeah. yeah, it looks like, at least from your background, that that's, uh, that's worked for you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, in some ways, you know, right. opportunities present themselves, right. Right. I mean, you know, and, and I think of myself as a generalist. Right. So sure. you know, read your Joseph Campbell, follow your bliss. <laughs> Come on, people. Uh, and just to wrap up here, we at the AMA, we, we'd like to think that our noble cause here at the American Management Association is helping people who are new to management or new to leadership or want to become better at it uh, to kind of help them make that transition or help them with those steps or with support that they haven't had before. Don't really understand. They might have been great individual contributors, but now they have a team, a budget, a project, whatever. What's in this book or what could be in this book for a new manager or an aspiring leader? I tell a couple stories about the most influential manager in my career, Scott Forstall, who was an executive at Apple and in charge of the iOS software team for that original iPhone. And Scott was the one who gave me the opportunities to do the work that I did at the company. And there, there was a moment when I had actually signed up, I mean, to refer back to that, that phrase, for a management role myself. And I found pretty quickly that it wasn't to my liking. I, I liked being an individual programmer better. And I had a bit of a, you know, there's no other real way to put it. I had a bit of a meltdown and, and said, you know, I, I can't do this. I, I need to have some other role. And Scott was there for me. He realized that, or at least he hoped, he had the trust, the faith in me that I could contribute if I just had maybe a different role. And so he gave me an amazing gift. He put me on the iPhone team Mm -hmm. when there were only six or eight people working on what became the software for the iPhone. And so, you know, this example of somebody being there for you, you know, even when the going gets a little bit rough, right, and putting the faith in you, uh, gave me the confidence to then go and do the work that I did on the iPhone. Was it hard to keep so much of this stuff secret? (laughs) Uh, You know, we... It was a very intense experience, and I worked pretty long hours. I mean, I tried to keep that under control, but I found that at work, at the office, we were so focused on the work that it helped me, at least, to have a little bit of a break, to go home, spend some time with the wife and my son, and that that distance also helped come up with ideas. You kind of put it in the back of your mind a little bit, but it never really was... You know, the, the latest problem, you know, the biggest issue, you know, the most difficult to fix bug would always be in my mind. Sure. 
you know, but you know, getting away from it in the in the front of your mind really helped. That little part of Apple already <laughs> sort always sort of stays with you. Sure. Though. We've been speaking to Ken Koshenda. He is the former principal engineer of iPhone software for Apple and the inventor of keyboard autocorrection. We're talking to him about his great new book, Creative Selection Inside Apple's Design Process During the Golden Age of Steve Jobs. Extremely cool stuff. Ken, good luck with the book. Thanks very much. AMA webinars give you 90 minutes of focused how-to instruction and specific solutions to help you solve your most pressing work issues. Find tactical, practical courses on building work relationships, polishing your spreadsheet skills, managing your team to meet company goals, and more on our events calendar at amanet.org forward slash events. We take feedback very seriously here at the AMA. If you get a minute, you have some thoughts about this program or additional questions, just send an email to us at podcasts at amanet.org. 